out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the Los Angeles band. It is the one and only, the Standells, because very recently I spoke to guitarist Tony Valentino to find out more about life, love and poetry, famous for many things, including their 1966 hit single, Dirty Water. And uh, they went on to sort of, I think, release about three or four albums in the 60s up to the early 70s and then disbanded. But they've been back together again in the 80s and 90s um, and this is the interview you'll find out more about the band through this so I'm not going to big it up now um, but it's a fantastic interview many many thanks for Tony for giving me this uh, opportunity so um, yes as we chat about this and that we get down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years Tony it's over to you the moment that a musical awakening to me was when the Beatles came out, when the Beatles came out, really it was awakening for the all American musicians because we never heard anything like it. And uh, I was already started the Stan Nails in 62. And prior to that, I was um, with, I started a band called the Starlighters. I'm from Italy originally. so. Yes. I was in the United States only for a year or two and I barely could speak English. My uncle found me a job in this bakery, which I met this gentleman named Jory Rich. We formed the band name um, uh, uh, The Starlighters and we went to record uh, the uh, demo for, uh, and I helped writing for Let's Go. You remember that song? (laughs) Huge hit all over the world. Let's go. And uh, it was, uh, original was called, I was, I uh, started the, the band with Lenny Duncan, me and Jody Richard Lenny Duncan, and we did some gigs and then uh, one of brothers took over. And um, so that was my, my first American, you know, awakening of music because I came from Italy. Yes. But definitely the Beatles did a lot to my, you know, I say, oh my God, I better start learning some more stuff on the guitar, you know, listen to George Harrison, the Beatles, you know, it was incredible. Yeah. Uh, and did you, um, God, there's two things here. Did you, were your parents at all musical? Did they have a kind of a, a musical background or some sort of interest in the arts? Did, and um, yes, did they, you know, did your mum sing or did your dad play piano? Uh, I mean, not, not really, no, not, I was, up in the mountains in Sicily with the cows and goat. Yes. <laughs> but so I was, was listening to this radio and I wanted to come to America so bad. But yeah. my parents are not really, maybe my mom used to sing sometimes, um, but not, not really a lot of experience. Of course, in Italy, we used to all sing the Italian songs, you know, in the piazza and, and all that, you know. Yes, absolutely. Was, and what was their kind of reason reasoning for sort of, you know, leaving Europe, Italy, and, and coming to the, you know, America? Well, the reason was that my mom, w- w- when she was six months old, she came to America. Her parents brought her to America, and they were in Cleveland, Ohio, for a while. And then somehow my grandfather did some 
something crazy. I don't know what he did. Some, something uh, to do with the alcohol, something sale of illegal alcohol. He got him deported back to Italy. Right. So my mom was here, and once in a while she would speak English. And we knew about America. I go, oh my God, I, I want to go to America. Though, and then we heard about Hollywood, you know, and all that. Started hearing the American music on the radio, and I go, I really would love to go to America. Yes, absolutely. And why uh, L.A. and not New York? Because I just wondered if there was kind of a reasoning for. Oh yeah, the reason was because my uh, my aunt and uncles were in California. And, and since I wanted to come to Hollywood, I just, we decided to come to California. Uh, so we end up here in Los Angeles area. Yes. And what was it like, you know, going to school at such a, in a sort of completely different country with a different language? Did you quickly sort of mix in? Did you get a, a gang? Yeah, it was kind of, it was kind of really kind of scary, but I was like about 16 and a half, 17. So I was at the end of my high school thing. I didn't really couldn't get into high school because I already, you know, but then I got some kind of a night school that my 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 uncle set up and I was going to that. And also, you know, listening to the radio a lot, to music and, and TV, television, people talking and would ask questions what they say what they say you know and people helping us and um we start more or less in a, in a year and a half or so two years start to speak english pretty good yes absolutely it, it was a trip because i can't i remember i came i got a job in hollywood my uncle said go go work at this place he took the bus in the morning and I got to Hollywood and I was trying to tell the guy to let me out and I had no idea. So he took me about four stops away from where I was supposed to go, you know. But it was it was an experience. I was trying to tell, hey, please stop. But I didn't know how to say, please stop, you know. <laughs> so that was yes. kind of you know, trippy, uh, you know, something I remember forever. Yeah, well, absolutely. That's quite terrifying. So when the Beatles hit in sort of 63 time and then the Rolling Stones as well, you were sort of in your early 20s at that stage. Did it feel just like... 19, yeah, yeah. In that kind of ballpark. Did you, I mean, were you, had you already picked up a guitar before then and started playing? I I did in Italy. Uh, uh, My uncle built me, uh, we had no music store in my little town, so... I was after my uncle to build me a guitar because all the guys around the piazza, they would get together at night in the summer and would sing and play Italian songs. So I wanted to really do that, to learn how to play. And finally I got my guitar after a year and and I started, they let me in and I started to learn some chords and I started playing Italian music. Yes, And 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 did it come, easily to you did you sort of find yourself being able to work out you know how to create a song you know chord progression all those kind of things yeah i knew all my chords so all the all the you know do re mi fa so la si do you know all those and so when i came to america i was already aware of of how to play the guitar but not lead or anything like that there was no such a thing in italy we had no we had no Fender guitars, you know, nothing like this. 
but uh, I started when I came here and then I, somebody gave me another guitar and I said, listen to American rock music and I started to practice and I got myself an early Sears guitar, electric. In those days, it was Sears was famous. You know, they were selling amplifiers, uh, silver tone amps and guitars, silver tone guitars. And, and then we, um, um, I started to learn how to play with the American, uh, American guitars and Americans started playing American music experiment with that. Yes, because a lot of people who um, often get sort of asked, you know, what their early musical moment, you know, people were, you know, people like David Bowie, yeah, Lemmy, yeah. From, Lemmy from Motorhead, who were both of the same age. They'd always say, you know, it was kind of Little Richard, seeing Little Richard was just massive. And then Elvis Presley, Buddy Holly, Eddie Cochran, people like that. Did, did those kind of artists, did they come into your orbit and um, have an influence on you? Oh, definitely, for sure. I would say Buddy Holly, big, big time Buddy Holly, definitely, because I loved the way he played the guitar, you know, do, 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 you know, that was something I never heard. So I started to listen to Buddy Holly a lot. And I also started listening to blues. This friend of mine gave me, a, gave me this album, this vinyl album, uh, it was uh, Benny King, Benny Eek. And I started to learn to listen to all his songs over and over and over to the way they were playing guitars and the way they were they were just playing the music all together between that and then uh, I was listening to to BB uh, King you know all the all the blues all the blues uh, uh, artist uh, which I have never really experienced in Italy so I was really enchanted with learning American you know, blues, yeah. Um, the uh, the original, uh, really American about black music, uh, blues. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because actually, I suppose that's what a lot of the Beatles, you know, getting all these imports over from a, uh, you know, from America, coming into Liverpool, and um, yes, and the sort of those early early bands and the Rolling Stones, obviously, often talk about all the sort of blues artists that they loved. And um, and I saw, and also as with the Beatles, people like Paul McCartney, they had quite a, they had quite an interest in the musical period of the late 1800s in the UK. So he had that kind of rather interest in and sometimes some quirky, quirky sort of songs. So when did you think music was going to be your, not, um, you know, like your main occupation almost in, in, in the 60s? Uh, my main occupation. Because uh, you, had you left school at 16 by then, about by this stage, at, you know, in the yeah. early 60s? Right. Um, well, um, the uh, the old thing was that when I was in Italy, dreaming of coming to America to play rock and roll, only because that I forgot to imagine that uh, listening. I had um, when I was about sixteen and a half in Italy before I came here, about and I, I was listening. I watched a movie. Uh, Blackboard Jungle, you know, I heard that Billy Haley in the comments that yes. song, uh, Rock Around the Clock. And when I heard that solo that they did, I, go, I was completely blown out. I go, oh my God, I'm going to have to learn 
the solo, how they play the solos. And um, that really inspired me a lot to really push my family to come to America. Yes. Uh, and the, so, the, power, the power of Hollywood films. Yeah, after waiting, because my grandparents were in Cleveland, all my relatives were here. And so we, uh, because all this, when they got deported to Italy, to my town, to Sicily, all my aunts and uncles, they all went back uh, because they were, they were speaking English. So I would hear them also speaking English and I go, I got to go to America. I, I really <laughs> got to figure out what's going on. Yes. So, so blessing. Yeah. So had you left school and started working and then the band started to form at this stage in the 60s? Right. When I, so when I got here, you know, I, I just took nine classes. And as I said, I was working in the bakery and I met this fellow named Jody Rich. And we started the first band called the Starlighters. And from there, uh, I got the that did my first recording here in the United States. And that, that was incredible, you know, the already, uh, you know, already being on the radio, yeah, it was incredible. And then we, we were looking for a keyboard player. I met, we met another fellow, you know, that was started a band named Larry. And, and so me and Jody, we united with Larry and we formed the Stan Nellis in 1962. Right. And this was it. This was the moment. That was day one. I've been Standell and uh, I've been a part of uh, completely from day one, uh, working really hard to get to the point where, you know, we got signed with different companies and we, we were working a lot, six nights a week in those yes. days to, well, to really tired, you know. Well, I suppose at that stage, you know, there was the, the live music circuit was quite something, wasn't it? Because the Beatles had gone over to Hamburg and were playing like two, three shows a night and then sort of doing that for a very long period of time. So they really, that was their apprenticeship. So with, with you, before you got into the studio and cut your first single, which I think is, was your first recording was You'll Be Mine Someday with the B-side of Girl In My Heart. Before you'd done that, had you played a lot of gigs over a couple of years? Uh, not, not really, not that much, you know, we kind of, we put the band together, the, our first gig, when we put the Stanells together, it, it was uh, Hawaii, we went, we were booked in Hawaii, uh, as a matter of fact, we didn't have a name, we just started, and uh, the, our booking engine says, go outside, you guys come up with a name, then come back. And so, because they want to know the name of the band in Hawaii, and we came up with the Standells. At first, was uh, there was a Standell amplifiers, and then we found that was a little bit kind of a dangerous. As a matter of fact, in '64, we went and did a DBA on the Standells because Standells was spelled with one L, and we went to Hawaii as the Standells with one L, and then because fear of getting sued. We changed the name, did a DBA in 64, Standells with two L's. Right, so, I've got you. <laughs> yes, we went to Hawaii and, and we were there for six weeks. We ended up staying for six months. So we learned, I learned a lot in Hawaii by playing six nights, six nights a week. Yes. Just playing top 40s, you know. All, and, what was, and what was the audience like in Honolulu? Oh, that was great because 
we found ourselves in this club. They had this uh, review of uh, 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 Japanese review of all these beautiful girls. Uh, and so it was like almost like a Las Vegas show. It was uh, uh, incredible. We, they, uh, and people, they would, tourists, they would flock into the club like crazy every night because they want to see the girls to the review and us play the music. They would, then at one point they were dancing. And so it was a really fantastic, fantastic start, you know. To, <laughs> you, know you, would the, a lot of, you would have got a lot of vitamin D and felt a quite a light, healthy lifestyle. So were you conscious then, you know, with obviously there was the Beatles appearing on the Ed Sullivan show, but were other bands like, you know, the Rolling Stones, the Kinks, the Who, were they all starting to, again, you know, come into your orbit? Right, the Rolling Stones also have to be. As a matter of fact, I went on tour with the Rolling Stones. We did a, a Rolling Stone tour. I, we can talk about it in a while. Um, uh, but the Rolling Stones, uh, they were a big influence. Um, also, a uh, lot of American music, you know, like Jackie Wilson, uh, a lot of um, music um, from uh, the doo-wop music also, you know, like the... We had the Four Seasons and uh, um, uh, Louis 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 Louis. That song Louis Louis was yes, a big Kings somebody. Yeah, the Kings. Yeah, the Kings man. Yeah. Yes, that's the one, Scott. Yes, a classic actually. Yeah. And had yeah. you? And were you also sort of picking up on that? The the kind of almost the birth of the teenager and the sort of the the rebel. Because obviously in the sixties. So much changes, doesn't it, during that one decade, and probably oh, more from '63 to '70. You know, oh, you, get, you get you get such a shift, and by '67, there's this huge, the summer of love. You know, everything's getting very psychedelic, and sort of everyone's getting tuned in, turned on, and dropped out. Were you also sort of picking up that vibe as a band? Oh, for sure. We were actually playing in San Francisco a lot, and as a matter of fact, when we were on the Monsters, we did the the Monsters was was incredible hit show. Uh, everybody's still talking to these days. Um, we had to do "I Want to Hold Your Hand." Uh, we could talk about that also. Uh, but um, the influence of the hippies and the San Francisco music and all that—it it was all kind of all into one thing. Uh, everybody was in it. You know, it was like a almost like everybody jumped in. Uh, and we were playing a lot in San Francisco, so I learned a lot in San Francisco by listening to the San Francisco guys, you know, like uh, the dad and uh, uh, all the guys, uh, Jefferson Airplane, all those guys that were coming out of San Francisco. Yes, that's interesting. And <clears throat> did you pick a, you got your first record deal, this was with Liberty Records, wasn't it? Liberty Records, yes, we did uh, a live album at PJs at the we yes. were playing in this club, which was a very popular club. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Trini Lopez was playing there, and he went on to he became a huge star because he got a couple of big hits from there. He did a live album at PJs, so then um, we met our manager. This other club was called the Peppermint West. And all the movie stars used to come there. And this crazy guy came in one night and says, I want to sign you guys. And we had uh, 
at the times when we went and got long wigs because I saw this picture of the Beatles in this Italian magazine because my mom, they were, we used to get the Italian magazine and I saw the, this four guys with long hair. And so I got the idea, we all go, let's go get wigs. So we got wigs and we put wigs on at the Midwest and people were going crazy and didn't see anything like it. Then we went to, we went to PJs from there, we recorded a live album and uh, we got signed with Liberty Records, yes. Yes, I mean, you did sign a lot of, so you went from Liberty, well, BJ Liberty, and then you signed with MG, MGM for one single as well. Yeah, just for that, yeah. Um, with the, the VJ, VJ Records, it was a trip because I got to tell you this little story. When we got signed, uh, I remember we, we walked into the office and there was, uh, the president sitting behind the desk, we went to his, to his uh, office and we sat right in front of him in the, in the huge desk. And so we were really happy. He goes, welcome you guys. I'll be glad to um, signing you guys today. And he goes, I want you guys to know that I just let these four guys go from my label and, and to sign the standells. And we couldn't figure out, he wouldn't tell us who it was, right? And then on the way out, finally, we found out, go, who was it? Who was it? You know, there was a girl there and some other people. He goes, this is the Beatles. So they let the Beatles go, VJ. I don't know if you remember that. Because no. they were on VJ Records with a couple of songs. Uh, Love Me Do, I think, or I Want to Hold Your Hand. They had a couple of songs on VJs, the Beatles. Fantastic. So they yeah. said, "Yes, we'll let them. We'll let them go." God, he didn't get a pen. Then we got signed with, uh, yeah, with uh, MGM. We did uh, a couple of songs with Sonny and Cher. Uh, Sonny produced us, uh, and um, uh, as a matter of fact, she sang in a couple of the songs. Yes. And, yeah, it was a riot. There was a we recorded this incredible studio, famous Gold Star Studio, and uh, like at the time, uh, Phil Spector was recording the Rogers Brothers, which they were friends of mine. Also, I remember Bobby took me into Studio A. They were they were recording Lost That Loving Feel. Yeah, <laughs> I was right there. They were just the orchestra was just finishing, and I met everybody. And uh, that was incredible. So we recorded a gold star, which was incredible. Uh, we recorded two songs and then we used the only time that the Stendhal's used, we used the Glenn Campbell on guitar, Carol Kay, the Wrecking Crew. You know, the Wrecking Crew famous. Yes, the greatest bass player of all time. His voice, everybody. Yes. So we doubled up all the musicians and we, you know, we had two bass players, two, Two guitar players, me and Glenn Campbell, and, and you know, you know, and so on, and we did a couple of songs, Sunny Born and Sunny Share, yeah. God, my God, this this is amazing music, yeah, music, music royalty, incredible, but like incredible. And then we went on, uh, nothing happened. Then we went to sign, uh, uh, and then we recorded Riot on Sunset Strip for the movie. Uh, which at the time, right at the riot on the on the strip was incredible. The hippies and the you know, horses and cops and sirens and it was like a, they smacking us with a baton. You know, they were 
that would really mean, you know, because we, we anybody with long hair, we were considered enemies, you know? <laughs> yes, I know. Because actually in those couple of years, you did appear in a lot of films, didn't you? And, and TV programs and Bing Crosby show and stuff like that. It was, yeah, the Bing Crosby, that was a riot because I, when I came from Italy, I, I stayed in Cleveland for a while and my grandmother, they were watching, they go, oh, you gotta watch, it was Christmas time. And there was Bing Crosby on TV. And they go, oh, I go, oh my God, this guy's got, oh, amazing. I was just glued to the TV to watch the Bing Crosby. And then one day I found myself working with the Bing Crosby. That was amazing. That was really amazing. Yes, I know. I mean, the legend that is Bing Crosby. Yeah, yeah, Lucille Ball was there. And it was just incredible. I met Ricky Nelson at the studio. Uh, they took us to the set. They were filming Ozzy and Harriet in those days. Um, and then from there, we went, uh, oh, I, I got to tell you this. Uh, when when I came from Italy, my uncle, I was trying to write some music and I wrote like kind of Italian music um, song. I wanted Dean Martin, he was famous. He didn't, when I came to Hollywood, Dean Martin was like a huge star. Mm. So I wrote the song for Dean Martin and, and me and my uncle, he took me to Capitol Records and I couldn't speak English. And all of a sudden, you know, I couldn't figure out what they were talking about. All of a sudden, two guards came in and escorted us out. <laughs> and the funny thing is, three years later, I was in Capitol Records signing a contract, you know. Yes, this is that was this a really big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And did people like, you mentioned Dean Martin, did people like Frank Sinatra, did they, were they quite influential to you or was that a kind of a bit of a different scene, people like him? I just wondered if he's... Yeah, not that much as uh, they influenced me. I mean, I like them because of what they were doing, especially Frank Sinatra for sure. I mean, and at the time, the shows they had and uh, all the music they were making was incredible. And but I was more inclined into into playing like rock and roll. Yes. Rock and roll. As a matter of fact, I got to tell you this little story. A couple of weeks ago, I went to this club, and I met uh, the drummer for the Germs. Uh, the Germs, a band. I'm, I'm sure you know about the Germs. Yes. And the guy goes, "Oh yeah, Tony Valentino. I remember you. You the guy that." kick the speaker in the 60s made your sound sound really funky which i did that i've i've forgotten all about that speaking of a silver tone amplifier that's what i did i couldn't get the right sound so i kicked the speaker and i got this crazy weird sound <laughs> and so then when the people know about it i did that to get a yes. you know to get yeah. a kind of funky a few, yeah. a few years later, yes, you saw Pete yeah. Townsend and Jimi Hendrix right, right. smashing their equipment up. But then 65, you signed with Capitol Records and you team up with your producer, Ed Cobb. Was oh, that right. quite a pivotal, a pivotal moment for the band? Did that sort of, because before then, you'd obviously had quite a few lineup changes, lots of different record labels. And yeah, we, we, we were, bef it was before we had a different drum, drummer was Gary Leeds, which... He came to England and became huge star, big hits, the, the Walker Brothers. Right. Yeah, so Gary Leeds was in my band in the Standells, 
And, and then one day we were at PGA's, he goes, Tony, uh, I'm going to England. Well, come on, let's go to England. And there was another crazy guy, PJ Broby. Uh, his name was PJ Broby here. It became, uh, I don't know the name he used in England. He became another huge star. Um, but Gary Leeds wanted to take me to England, but I didn't go. And then we replaced the Gary Leeds with Dick Dodd. They came at PJ's. Yes. And that's that's when we got signed with the Capitol Records. And we were looking, we had no direction, not not that much of direction, because this other guy was singing lead before, but when Dickie Dodd came on to the band, he started singing and he had that kind of he had that kind of a voice that was kind of you know punkish yes. sounding, you know, a new a new kind of a thing. Uh, and me with uh, with my sound that I created on my guitar. And, and him with that voice, kind of created, started creating a kind of punk, punk sounds movement. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it is kind of one of those. Can you says, Sorry, what you were just saying? Yeah, that's everybody like up to these days. Tell me, he goes. I mean, it's written all over that we started the punk movement. Stan else, you know. Yes, and what's your memory of of doing Dirty Water? Can you remember? The kind of origins of that song. Sure, the origin was that uh, we we went uh, we recorded Dirty Water. So we met Ed Cobb through um, Capitol Records. When we uh, we met our manager Seymour Heller, he was managing Liberace, and he got us to sign with the Capitol Records, and and then he introduced us to Ed Cobb. <clears throat> to this, <clears throat> excuse me, they had a production company. And so they signed us and we recorded with the Eddie Cobb and Duty Water. As a matter of fact, it was, uh, we started recording it up in, in this garage and, uh, in Hollywood. Um, there was a room up from the garage and uh, there was like this madness recording studio. Armistein became a, Armistein, he became a huge engineer. George Harrison used him a lot. Right. Later on, later on. But when he started, he, had, he knew a lot about recording. And when we started recording Duty Water, Ed Cobb introduced us to Duty Water because he was in Boston. He, his girlfriend was there and he went to meet her and he couldn't get in because everybody goes to sleep at 12 o'clock. That's what it says in the song and the lyrics. And, and then he, meanwhile, he was waiting to see her walking around the Charles River, you know, then, you know, the muggers and thieves. So, and, and then, but Dirty Water, we, we heard Dirty Water and it was like just three chord changes that we didn't really like that. And then uh, we kind of put it away for a while. We're still kind of trying to figure out what could we do with the song. And then uh, uh, start talking about kind of putting something in front so I went home for a couple of days and I started messing around with the guitar to see if I come up with some kind of, of a intro thing. Yeah. Remembering, listening to Satisfaction, the Rolling Stones, the riff they had. And I kind of got the kind of idea of, of that kind of almost idea of doing like a slide thing, you know. So I went back a couple of days later and then, and then, uh, there was history and 
I came up with a rifle, we put it in the front of the song and that was it. Mm. And, uh, and then we just put the song away in the drawer for a while. And then it started breaking all over the United States. And, and we were playing in Seattle. We had to come back, go on tour. The owner wouldn't let us go from the club. So that was, that was kind of everything happened so fast. And that was the dirty water situation. Yes, and that was quite something, wasn't it? So that was the, and that was the kind of the album came out in 66, which obviously is famous in the UK for right. England winning the World Cup. Can you, I mean, were you pleased with the record when it came out? Because it's sort of, it's got 10 tracks, it's got a couple of co- uh, covers on it. Did it feel very much like you were sort of in a good place at, the, at that time with the band? Uh, yeah, we were in a good place, but we really didn't like Dirty Water that much. I don't know, we just kind of, as I said, they put it away and then they sent it to the station in Orlando, Florida, and the guys start playing it and start breaking all of it. And they go, wow, dude, you are, I guess I created something with that riff. Now, everybody, <laughs> guitar players playing that riff, you know. <laughs> Excuse me. Yes, that's fine. Uh, yeah. Uh, it was like something, you know, we didn't expect, but it was incredible. It was quite quite something because with a lot of the bands that I interview, you know, I sort of found there's a bit of a five year narrative. You know, there's the the first twelve months, which is the honeymoon period, where you're getting that sound together, and then the first single comes out. You know, and and a DJ. You know, in the in the UK, we had a DJ called John Peel. He would often give people a bit of a play, and then you get a John Peel session. Who, you know, and things are going good. The first album, things going, you know, nice. The second album can be a bit hit and miss. But sometimes by the third album, you know, things aren't going terribly well because things, you know, it's just all getting a bit messy. What was it like trying to have the follow up album at this stage? And because obviously you'd been together for quite a few years and had a few personnel changes. Well, then uh, when Dirty Water came out and then started breaking, it was like in the top tens and then the Rolling Stones came in and we went on tour with them and it was a really incredible experience and lucky, I must say, to be alive. Traveling <laughs> 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 with those crazy guys, you know. It was it was an incredible, crazy tour. And um, from there, yeah, it, it was a lot of... Uh, a few more, uh, we were scrambling again to come up, you know, with the second hit, you know, which we did, uh, we did, uh, we recorded uh, Why Pick Up Me and Try It. Try It was banned by uh, this crazy guy from from Texas. They said it was suggested because we said, try it. <laughs> right. There's days where they say it on the radio. Um, uh, you know, they get away with the stuff that today it was unbelievable that we had to put up in those days to have the song banned. The song was number one all over the all over the nation, and then this guy says, "No, no." So a lot of stations dropped it, and he screwed us up completely. Yes, at that stage. So yes, yes. Ryan Stone. And did you did you get on okay with the the Stones and their crew? Yeah, it was it was a, a unforgettable journey. Uh, one, one night we were we were playing cards, you know, like every night we, we were based from New York, and we were playing cards and uh, every night after the concerts. Yes. And one night uh, there was we were playing uh, uh, poker. One night there was a huge pot of money on the table, and uh, 
the last three was was uh, was Mick Jagger and and Keith and Brian, and uh, I think uh, Keith lost a hand and he got so mad he took the, the cards in a pile and he started a fire, a real fire. <laughs> so the captain had come out and said he was gonna you know, land in the desert anywhere. You didn't want to die. And so we had to put out the fire. That was like crazy. You know, it was like every every day was something something else on that tour. It was like some some crazy stuff that went down. Yes, I would imagine. And uh, I guess, and how did you cope with that kind of, this sort of, I suppose it was not the first time that crowds were going wild, but it was getting quite sort of, you know, the birth of the teenager and, and that kind of scene was growing so rapidly. Did you cope with, you know, how was it with having such fanatical audiences every night and just like almost near riots for, for sort of being in the band? Oh, oh I'm going to tell you this other episode. You're talking about the riot. Um, we were playing in, in Houston, yes. Texas, and with the Stones, and we went on, uh, the McCoys went on, and then the 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 Rolling Stones came on, and uh, all of a sudden it was so hot and humid. It was horrible. Like when I got off the stage, my shirt was completely soaked. And um, so when the Stones came on, about three songs, five songs down, uh, uh, Brian uh, Jones went and wiped his face with the American flag that was next to the stage. And I'm telling you. We almost got killed. Everybody revolted. Everybody got up, started throwing things at stage, started chasing us. We had to get out from the back room and and get out of there. They were, they wanted to kill us. <laughs> well, the souls had to pay, they had to pay a lot of money. They cost them a lot of money. They cost a lot of money to 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 get they get to get to get away with that. You know. Yes. They got amazing. I never forget that was scary. Yes, absolutely. I could imagine that yeah, some I mean, people you know, wipe their face with the American flag. You know. <laughs> yes, you've got to be careful, haven't you? So look, see all kinds of weird stuff. I would imagine. So '67. This was the summer of love, and and you know, San Francisco has the gathering of the tribes in San. You know, in January we have the 14-hour Technicolor Dream in in London in the Alley Pally. What was it like culturally for you at this stage? You know, seeing the sort of the rise of that kind of. I suppose the hippie movement was really becoming quite evident yeah. at this point. Well, that, that's when right under, I wrote right under the street where they did the movie, the song for the movie. At the time, they start, it started getting pretty crazy because the war in Vietnam, the, all, the, all the riots, uh, people that were just like completely uh, fed up with the police, you know, you know, you know, banging on their heads and everybody's skulls with that, with that, with that you know, chasing by the cops. So it was like a big, huge revolution uh, in 67. It was like really kind of scary. It was like when we never knew what was going on. There was so much going on that uh, it was out of control in a way, you know. Yes, I would imagine, you did, yeah. you know, it's gone from a very honeymoon period to... Right, right. Yeah, Vietnam, and also the Charles Manson thing started to come oh, along. And there was probably a lot of casualties as well with people taking far too many drugs at this stage. Oh, the drugs and, and the acid and the love ends. Charles Manson, I'm telling you, me and Dennis Wilson, the Beach Boys, Dennis Wilson, 
the drummer, who we used to be good friends. We used to go on the bike ride, yes, motorcycles. And we used to go to the Swan Ranch. I we used to know him. Charles mentioned he used to play the songs to Dennis to see if his producer would would record them. As a matter of fact, is in the movie we went to Spine Ranch to to deliver the message that that Terry was going to go there, the producer, to listen to these songs. And then when all that was like, I never forget, it was like this guy came in running. I used to live on Laurel Canyon. Everybody, all the musicians, you know, everybody was there. Jim Morrison, Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy Hendrix. We were on Laurel Canyon, famous place. Yes. Uh, and the guy told me, oh, God, Tony, Tony, you know what happened? Charles Manson and all these people got killed. There was, I was like my hair out of, out of my skull. It was like so crazy. I could not believe it. It was like something really scary, really. i never forget that. So you went to the char- the ranch that um, had Charles Manson and members of the family hanging out there. Oh, sure. Sure, we were right there. We went there a couple, few more times. We went three or four or five times, maybe. But actually, Charles mentioned, and the three girls, they used to come to Dennis' house. He, he lived off Sunset Boulevard. And we used to go there skateboarding. And, um, and Charlie used to sit on the, on the sidewalk with his guitar. He used to play us these songs, you know. But yes. definitely, I was like scared. Like, oh, my God. I could have been there. Oh, that was crazy. Yes. And did you, I mean, it's always curious because of, you know, who he is. I mean, did you get, you know, because obviously as as we get older, we hopefully get a bit wiser with people. Did you, I mean, what was the sense you got when you were with him in his presence? Because obviously, you know, no one knew what was going to happen next. Oh, oh, when I was in the presence of of Charles Charles Manson. Yes, of Charles Charles. It was really... It was kind of really scary because Dennis was going, look, Tony, this guy's like taking over because the girls, the three girls, they would they would go in the house, take over the house while we were outside and he was playing the guitar. And I remember Charlie goes, if the girls, you need anything from anything you need from the girls, they'll do it for you. You know, and I remember that all the time. And he was like, really like, he used to command them, hey, go inside. Go make some food. You know, it was really rough, you know, to the girls, you know. And uh, it was like we were kind of, I don't know what's going on with this guy. We were kind of concerned, a little bit concerned, you know. Yes. But Dennis Dennis was a bit more friendly towards him, wasn't he? Didn't he sort of have a bit more of a friendship? Yeah, he kind of became friend. as, As I said, he was coming, showing up all the time with the girls and, you know, they used to dance to the girls, and he just like, just he, he tried to entertain us in everywhere, so he would get in with 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 that label. You know. Yes, I know. My God, trying to listen to Charlie yeah. on the acoustic guitar, thinking, no, I'll just listen to Joni Mitchell over here or Crosby, anyway, Stills, and Nash. Will you tell me the name of your show again, so I can tell everybody, David? I know you're David. Oh yeah, the C the C eighty six show. I'll send you a link. It will. See. Yeah, that's right. That's it. I'm doing so many interviews. I'm so sorry. I did. I got two more coming today. One oh my god. So um, um, and I did another one last night, but uh, all of a sudden because Dennis Ch- uh, Channing, a friend, and a good people that 
really got involved with me in he believed that my uh, putting out a new album now redid all the dirty water songs completely like the 60s and i got two great guys i got a gary calusa on bass and vocals i got uh, Dwayne waiter great drummer he dr he drums just like dick dot and he's he sings and he plays drums just like Dick Dodd did. Excellent. And he sings pretty close to Dick Dodd, very close. So as a matter of fact, an, a new release of uh, Barracuda, uh, I don't know if you got a copy yet, but if you don't, I have I have Dennis send you a copy. Oh, okay. It'll be released Friday. Yeah, that'll be uh, handy. Yeah. So look, as as the yeah. 60s progress, just, just, you know, just get an idea. What's it like for the band? Because does it kind of... Do you get to that point in the sort of 69 where you decide the band, it's finished for the moment? Oh, yeah, that, that was horrible in 69 because Dick Dodd in 68 quit the band. He wanted to go as solo artist. So me and Larry we were devastated. As a matter of fact, we had a contract waiting for us with Don Hill. And um, we were there to sign and, and Dick Dodd never showed up to sign the contract. And it was a big blow. We, we lost a lot of money. And my manager at the time, Andrew Lusen, Corey Wells, we were recording at American Studio, American Recording Studio. Um, Andrew Lusen, my manager, Bert Jacobs, to Corey and, uh, and Danny and those guys. And then he ended up managing them. So the Three Dog Night took the Stendhal contract from Danielle. And they become a history. It was historic, huge. You know, if if Dick Dodd had shown up, you know, to sign, we were they were pushing the standells, but that that didn't happen, so we, we couldn't sign it because Dick Dodd wasn't there. So oh, and, that is not good. So what? You know, what so what's your seventies period like? Because obviously, you know, it's like the wheels have come off the truck, and um, oh god, that was horrible. The seventies. I remember in the seventies, then then the disco started. And the people, they didn't even know who, what Dirty Water was or Stan Dallas. No, it had nothing to do with it. You know, I remember I started all over again. I find myself uh, going to Canada, a lot to play. And um, as a matter of fact, uh, this one guy, Larry, quit the band and I went to Canada to play for, for about five years off and on um, uh, under the, as the Stan Dallas because he quit the band, so, uh, and then um, I remember I had to find another, I had to play in this club, like, in Santa Barbara, like, downgrading from being at the Hollywood Ball with the Rolling Stones back into this little dive clubs. The 70s was, I remember it was horrible for me. It was, like, completely devastating. Yeah, yeah because, you know, our, our company, the, they took us for a ride. They took us. They wouldn't pay us a ride. We had to take them to court later on. And uh, so we, we were left penniless, you know, because we didn't really get paid from the rewarder. Yes. That so, was that, the, the murky world of the, the music. Yeah. And then in the 80s, does the band, do you start to get uh, the band back together again and start? Yeah, in the 80s, yeah, again. I got the, I got the guys together. I found the guys. I found Dick Dodd again, and Larry came back to town, and and so I got him to record. We recorded again, 
And, and then we played at the lingerie in Hollywood. And um, David Kennedy introduced us that night. It was a magical night. It was beautiful. This it was is incredible play. And we were trying to get another recording uh, thing with this one attorney. And we found out this guy was like a phony guy. And we just recorded some songs and, and nothing happened, you know. It was not a Hollywood scene, you know. Yes. And was this stage where people starting to discover or, yes, discover the band for the first time or then want to hear it again after the 60s? Did you start to find a, a bigger audience in the 80s? Yeah, in the 80s, we kind of came back again because of of all this new punk rock music that started coming out, like, you know, The Clash, you know, and, and you know, The Sex Pistols, all this you know, all this, all these bands that were fans of the Standells, you know, go, oh my God, these guys are really, they were, they were like, oh, I couldn't believe it, the Six Pistols were, you know, and, and the Clash and all these people started imitating us. So then I started going, oh my God, I'll never, and I never give up on writing music. I always stayed with the music, except in the, in the 90s, late 90s, I opened a restaurant, Italian restaurant. I'm not <laughs> doing that also. Um, tried to make some money, you know, get some venues. And then I got married and I got a beautiful child. Now she's 27. Uh, Rihanna, my daughter, and I'm happy about that. But other than that, uh, I stayed in the music all my life, all this time. Oh, and absolutely. Because I, 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 say I couldn't give it up, you know? <laughs> yes. And then Dirty Water... It's kind of become this anthem, hasn't it, for various in different places. There's the, it's the official anthem for the Red Sox. Right, then, the Red Sox, exactly. And then Liverpool Football Club in about three years ago, it becomes another sort of, it's sort of played during home, after home games as well, isn't it? Because of this kind of connection with the owner of the... Oh, really? I didn't know that. That's great. Wow. Yes, it's, it's, oh, it's wow. to do with the, the club is owned by Fenway Sports Group. Oh, um, Fenway, oh, oh, they own by them, oh, I see. And that's yeah. the same as the Red Sox. So Dirty Water. So did you manage to eventually get some income from, from having been part of this kind of classic early punk song? Yes, finally we got some income. You know, as a matter of fact, they feature Dirty Water, my riff on, on, uh, on the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. So we made some incredible money on that, really good money. And it was incredible to hear my riff on yes. Super Bowl. It was unbelievable. Uh, and, um, and, and, and we're getting our residuals from now Uni Universal owns the catalog, the Stendhal catalog. So, um, and so finally, we are, I feel, I, f I feel that lately it's been, we are like in the last 10 years, and also I have a friend here, Rodney Bingham, Rodney on the Rock. He's famous. He started David Bowie over here. He was really good friend with their boy, Rodney. He's a dear friend of mine, and he plays the Stendhal's all the time, and he's, he's got a serious XM show on Channel 21. Right. And yes. Uh, so Rodney's a huge influence on all of us musicians. So um, it's, it's and, called uh, Rodney on the Rocks. Yeah, he's, oh. I, I still see him all the time. 
Yeah, absolutely. But then in 2013, you also bring out a new album, don't you, which has got a quite a, well, that was 10 years ago now. But um, yes, was that fun bringing those together? Because the production sound is incredible. Oh, oh the, uh, the, the new album, no, I would, the, 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 uh, the 2014, 13, 12 album. Yeah, no, I was that one. No, I was not. I moved out of, I moved to San Francisco. My daughter was going to school there. And then we had some kind of problems uh, with attorneys about the, usually the bands break up, you know, stuff. And you sue you, I sue you, you sue me. And I, I was not involved in it. I was not involved into that. No. Yes. So does that mean you're still, are you still part of the standouts or is that now? Well, that you... I, have, I have a, I have a 50% owner of the trademark, the standouts. Yes. Right. Uh, there is no more standouts uh, because uh, Dick Dodd passed, you know, passing and John, the bass player passing. So there was not really any more. And I was, uh, this one guy goes out, he did before. I don't know what he's doing now. He has his 10 nails, but I got a lot of emails and stuff from people that were disappointed because I wasn't in the band. Dick Dodd wasn't in the band. And you know, this one guy did it on his own with some other musicians, you know. Oh, and, was it, and it, was he the guy who recorded Bump? Yeah, right, right. Right, okay. It did so sound I, quite different. I, I, yes. Yeah, right. It's a difficult one. It's a tricky one. Yeah. So did you say a little bit earlier that you're, you've you started re-recording bits or remixing stuff? I just right. couldn't... I the old Dirty Water album, the old, all the songs on Dirty Water album, plus two new uh, that I've written songs. Uh, me and Gary Galusa, we got together. I write all the time. I have a studio in my house here. So um, uh, we put two of those new songs, plus all the songs from from uh, from the the dirty water, I re I re re record them with my guitar. Mostly was my guitar sound, you know, and the bass and the farfisa, the the uh, the vox organ. So I did everything. I came up again with the same sounds. I've been working really hard on this for two years. Yes. So with that, with with re-recording the album of Dirty Water, does that mean you've got a different vocalist, or have you taken the original vocal and it's going to keep keep? Yeah, that? because Dick Dodd passed away, so nobody. I have this one guy, Dwayne Waiter, that he sings exactly like Dick Dodd. He's the only guy that could do it, and he's great at it. So and he plays drums too and sings just like Dick Dodd, and so sometimes honestly, I get deja vu. In some of the some of the lyrics, when we record some of the words he, that he sings, just like Dick Dodd, I go, "Oh my God!" Sometimes I flash. I go, "You must be wow, reincarnation of Dick Dodd," you know? Yes. Uh, so he's, the album is sounding great. As a matter of fact, we got signed. We just got signed through Dennis um, um, to, with a with a Big Stir Records. Uh, <laughs> So this coming out, the, the Barracuda from the album is going to come out like Friday. Blimey, it's all it's all there. So this year, well, not this just year, in the next couple of months, the the album's coming out. Great, yeah, in a vinyl. It's going to be in vinyl. We have to wait a couple more months because they they begged orders right now because everybody wants vinyl again. I know. 
So there's not too many companies left doing that. So for the, for the album, it's going to take vinyl a couple of months, but the single will be out Friday. And what's the first, what's the first single from it? Uh, Barracuda. Barracuda. It's going to happen. Blimey, this is... Been... Yeah. That is uh, fantastic. I, didn't, I did not, you know, I, all my research, I, I didn't know Barracuda, this. Barracuda, down from the Odyssey, you know. It's a great song. And uh, the, the, Dwayne did a great job singing it. And um, so, but we'll, I have Dennis Channing sending you a copy for sure. Yeah. Your email, have to get off uh, when I can send it to you. You can tell me where to send it. Yeah, absolutely. I'll pop it over. But um, yes, it's all, that's amazing. So nearly sort of 50 years you've, well, not, yeah. you know, it's, um, you've come back and, re, and rediscovered and redone and them we, again. We, appeared, we did a short uh, Whiskey of Gogo, the famous Whiskey of Gogo on the strip not too long ago let's it was a couple two years ago 2019 before the virus the COVID-19 and all that because after that everything got shut shut down so but now thank god I'm getting I'm working to go back on tour and we're talking about probably coming coming toward Italy and England and Spain um, and France also and Possibly Las Vegas. We're working Dennis is a lot of stuff right now. You gotta do you gotta do Vegas, haven't you? That would just yeah, be, right. just be yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And you still, you know, I mean, just being able to pick the guitar up, it all just comes back to you straight away and you can well, make I mean, the same. As I said to you, I never give up the guitar. I've been playing, I've played six nights a week I'm with the music. And I'm producing right now this other other young artist also. And um, um, I just did a song, as a matter of fact, with, uh, with uh, Glenn Burke from Blondie, the drummer. Um, he's playing on, on one of the songs that I produce. Um, so uh, I'm always into music. Night, I'm, from six o'clock until four o'clock in the morning, I'm just here in my studio. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's really funny because there are so many people who say, oh, I've done a new album with Glenn Burke on drums from Blondie. Like, yeah, oh, he's playing a lot with a lot of people, absolutely. He is, there is, there's, yeah. <laughs> he has been around and it's- We just know, had it's dinner great. not too long ago together with uh, me and Rodney, we're all good buddies, we hang out in Hollywood. Well, it's just brilliant, it's brilliant. Yeah. And, uh, and obviously LA's got quite nice weather. I mean, if there was something that you could have whispered in your ear when you were say 16 or 18, is there something that you wished you had sort of known then that you you know now from the years of experience and wisdom and stuff like that i would just say after listening to the beatles i i, I wish that in the 60s after the Beatles came out, i would have sat down and play and play the guitar more and more you know to to get advanced more and more and more but sometimes you just cannot become like a Van Halen, you know. Listen, you know, when Van Halen came out, I go, oh my God, why can't I play guitar like that? You know? Yes. <laughs> That's the I'm... only thing I regret that I didn't really set like I'm doing now, you know, six nights a week playing, you know, guitar or recording. I wish I would done that in the, in the, in the, in the 67 or 68. Um, uh, 
because while we're still together in 68 after the band broke up, then form another band, different people, you know, I was all over the place and, uh, and with no job, you know, it was all sudden, bam, everything, everything stopped, you know, so. Um, it is, it is tricky though, because I think when it's happening, you, it's difficult not to take it slightly for granted. And as you said, you had so many offers and worked with so many people quite quickly. You probably thought, this is it. This is the, you know, this is how it's going to be. This is, and um, yeah. yes, it's tricky to think it might change. I mean, just, just briefly with your experience with the Munsters, did that, was that, was that a kind of a highlight and was it fun working with, you know, some of the cast on the Munsters? Cause it was a oh. cult classic. That was so great. I, I, I never forget, we, we filmed at Universal Studio. And we went to the house, you know, with the stairs, all the spider webs, and, and Grandpa was there, and everybody was dressed. It was like, I couldn't believe, because that was so popular, the, the show in the 60s, I used to watch it every night. And then to be on it, I was like, I could not believe it. And then, see, the thing is, they wanted to get the Beatles. They wanted the Beatles to perform. But the Beatles turn it down, so that's why they wanted us to do "I Want to Hold Your Hand." Right. So us, we did "I Want to Hold Your Hand" uh, on, on the show, but which was, was nice. Riot. Yes, and what was it? What was Avon like? They were really nice. They were really, really nice. She was kind of quiet, uh, really nice, and uh, and uh, we were kind of joking around. And the little guy, eighty, he was like a really big fan of the Stan Hells. As a matter of fact, I saw him a couple of years ago. I did a show on Ventura Boulevard. He was there signing autographs. <laughs> doing the monster thing, yeah. Well, it was quite amazing because it was such a cult classic. That and you The know, Witch. I got, I got an interview at 2.30. I don't mean to cut it short. Yes, you better. You, you, minutes. No, but, but look, uh, I'll, um, you've got my address, but I'd love to, yeah, that's great. I'll, um, do you want me to send anything else? Yeah, just send me your email where, where I can send you the, I have Dennis chanting my, uh, my angel, guarding angel, send you the, the, the new single. Yeah, okay, look, thanks a lot. Have a great Thank day. Go and have a, have a break. I appreciate it. And then we, we, we can share your show. Yeah. You know, see, these, what, what was the C86? C86. I'll, C86. What I'll do, I'll send you the link and then you can put it up on your social media sites. Absolutely, I would love to. I really, a gentleman, you are. I really appreciate it. You remind me. I met, by the way, uh, um, um, the the Kinks. I met David. Yeah. Uh, he was so nice. He asked me. He goes. He goes. He was playing at the Rock. He was at the Roxy over here in Hollywood, and we met. And he goes. He goes, Tony. How did you get the sound on Duty Water? The funky sound. And I go, yeah. Well, I go, to him, I go. How did you get the sound and you really got me on that guitar, you know? So that was, that was a great yeah. <clears throat> exchange that we had with David. I recently um, did an interview with that producer who did that. David um, Davis. Yeah, David, David. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Have a great day. And I'll see you in England. Who knows? You never yeah, know. Yeah, absolutely. I'll let you know for sure. Definitely. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. So long.
And that, dear listener, is how you end an f- interview. Or not. Anyway, look, I love that last bit. Um, a massive thank you to Tony Valentino for giving me the time for that, talking about his life in music, the Standells, and much more. This has been the C86 Show, David Eastor. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And also, these have all been archived, aren't you lucky, on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Check them out. It's marvellous. Anyway, um, yes, have a great week. Stay safe.